0: Hello, this is Ben. I need to drop in for a moment and let you know about a giveaway we are running for the next week. After recording this episode, we realized that we referenced a particular book several times, and we thought it would be fun to give one of you dear listeners a copy. So beginning today, Tuesday, October 17th through Monday, October 23rd, everyone who reposts our own post of this episode on either Facebook or Twitter will be entered to win a signed copy of How Jesus Runs the Church by Guy Prentice Waters. It is a tremendous resource, and we extend our warmest thanks to Dr. Waters for helping us out, as well as Nathaniel Smith, an MDiv student at RTS Jackson, who coordinated on the ground and mailed the book to us. So be sure to share and repost this episode to be entered to win. And now, on to this week's episode. Hello and welcome to Polity Matters, Episode 7. My name is Ben Ratliff and I'm joined as always by Jared Nelson and Scott Edberg. We're glad to be with you all today to begin a discussion on BCO Chapter 3, The Nature and Extent of Church Power. I'm going to apologize ahead of time. I've been a little under the weather. We um, here in the Delta get what we call the Delta crud every season when the farmers start cutting and burning and stirring up dust and it just sits in your chest. So um, I'm sorry you won't have my smooth dulcet tones, but hopefully the smokiness will still uh, be attractive to everyone. Wanted to jump in uh, by getting to know Scott a little bit today, uh, Scott. What um what have you been watching besides the birds outside your window every morning?
1: <laughs> uh, I actually, my wife and I have uh, enjoyed like murder mysteries, and so we. We've liked the show on Hulu uh, Only Murders in the Building um around their third season now and we we particularly like it because it releases weekly so we're not tempted to lose sleep over watching it. I think they are releasing a new episode today. Um but we like mysteries and so we we've enjoyed um the Agatha Christie stuff with um with Murder on the Orient Express and The Death on the Nile. We like those kind of movies and I don't know if my wife will like the new one coming out, and I guess just a few days here, uh, but "A Haunting in Venice," which is like a murder mystery um, intermixed with some horror, um, and it has Perot in it, and we are big fans of Perot, even the new one, uh, and so yeah, we we like murder mysteries. We're not into like the uh, the um, the English side of murder mysteries, but we do like uh, those two.
0: Well, if anybody has recommendations for Scott in that uh, genre, be sure to tweet at him. He's on Twitter at S. Edberg. We're glad to get into the third chapter today. I was just telling the gentleman before we started recording, it's a a much heftier chapter than you realize at first glance. There's a a lot of significance to BCO Chapter 3. Several commentators that we've been looking at um, make this point that it's a very important part of our form of government. Um, that we establish a definition of church power. Um, one excellent resource on this particular subject is uh, Guy Waters' book, How Jesus Runs a Church. There'll be a link to that in the show notes if you're interested in acquiring it. Uh, in his chapter on church power, he says, every legitimate government possesses and exercises power. The question is not whether government has power to function properly. It must. He says the question is how that government exercises power and from what source the government derives its power. And that's what chapter 3 is seeking to make clear, the nature and extent of church power. So we're going to jump in to BCO chapter 3, beginning in paragraph 1, which reads, The power which Christ has committed to his church vests in the whole body, the rulers and those ruled, constituting it a spiritual commonwealth. This power, as exercised by the people, extends to the choice of those officers whom he has appointed in his church. Uh, Scott, I wanted to jump to you first as we begin thinking about this this beginning portion of the paragraph, the power that Christ has committed to his church. There's a significance here, not just in recognizing that the church has power, but where the power comes from. What, What do you have to say about that?
1: Yeah, this section um, grounds the basis for church authority and power. And so, as you said, it's extremely important to understand where we get our power from. Um, we don't get our power from the the people. We don't get our power from the church itself. Uh, but rather, it is based and grounded in Christ himself. The extent of church power comes from him, uh, which might seem kind of different in way of how we think of normal governments. Or other governments. Um, this is somewhat contrary to the Roman Catholic system, where the magisterium is, or the church govern, the church itself is given a great amount of power. Now, when you're studying the canon of scripture in Roman Catholicism, they are the ones that determine scripture. You see the kind of power that's vested in the magisterium or the church itself, and so we would um, push back and say no. Um, the, the power of the church is not grounded in the bishops, in the elders, or in the people, but rather Christ himself.
0: And we see this in the scriptures. One particular text that would be um, on the minds of most people is the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, where Jesus comes to them and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, he He is the one who rules. He's the king. And this harkens back to the beginning of the BCO preface right in paragraph one where it, it even quotes a lot of the text that would, would be good proofs here for him being the source of our power, uh, Jesus Christ upon whose shoulders, the government rests, whose name is called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of peace of the increase of whose government and peace, there shall be no end who sits upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever. Um, that you jump down a couple more paragraphs to number three and, and we get it more explicitly stated that it belongs to his majesty from his throne of glory to rule and teach the church through his word and spirit by the ministry of men, thus immediately exercising his own authority and enforcing his own laws upon the edification and establishment of his kingdom. And we're going to tease out here in a few minutes what some of that looks like, but it it's so important to start here that the authority that the church has does not come from any man. It comes from Christ, her King. Um, and so th- this means that, um, well, practically speaking, that, that the teachings of the church or the discipline of the church that comes down, th- they do carry weight, but not because they come from the church herself, but because they're handed down from Christ. Um, there's a lot of wisdom in our, um, our, our sort of scaled court system um, that we have courts to which you can appeal that the church does hand down what Christ has given, but courts can err. And so if a session is wrong in a particular judgment, even though their judgment is being handed down in the name of Jesus, um, there is a way to appeal to that judgment um, up to the next court and even to the third above that. Um, Men are appointed to serve, but we may err. And so uh, when or if we do, there's a way to appeal those decisions.
1: Um, when you're thinking about um how courts may err, as you were just saying a moment ago, there is a gravity when we are dealing um as a court of the church with the congregation below us. Um, I was reading the form for our indictment. If you seek to indict someone um who's in your congregation, part of it reads is that um they are that you are indicting them and the honor and majesty and name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King and head thereof. And so even when your session reads that as they seek to indict someone, there is a sense of gravity that this is not, it's almost an admonition to those who are indicting that we are acting not merely upon our own behalf, but on behalf of Christ himself. And so there's a sense of gravity when we are not the authority, when we are wielding an authority that's given to us by christ
2: well, what strikes me in the wording of the power which christ has committed to his church vest in the whole body is that there's a power that's actually delegated that we see exercised by the people in this paragraph right the, this power as exercised by the people so we're not just talking about it's only invested in uh, the officers but by the people when they choose officers And uh, sometimes you'll hear people talk about a um, grassroots uh, uh, model of Presbyterianism, and um, I I usually want to know what they mean by that, because it it shouldn't mean that, in fact, the people have all of the power, but it should be that in voting on officers, we're recognizing the call that uh, Christ has placed on them, and so we're trying to discern that, too, as uh, voting laymen. When we vote for our deacons, when we vote for uh, elders, or to call a uh, uh, a new pastor, and some of this harkens back to uh, preliminary principle number six uh, about the, the the society electing and having a choice over its own officers and leaders. Um, this. Uh, actually is, is rooted in some of the the splinter groups that came off. Um, you might have run into an associate reformed uh, Presbyterian church, or you might have uh, run into Free Church of Scotland. And both of those had issues with um, ministers being appointed by by patrons or by uh, by others that the congregation didn't have a say over. And so one of their principles was that the congregation needs to have a say to at least be able to say no uh, if there's a, a minister that's being uh, put over them that they don't uh, approve of. Uh, Now that raises another issue in our polity, in fact one that we had a uh, a lengthy debate over. Uh, We have a distinction between associate pastors and assistant pastors. Associate pastors are called by the congregation, and assistant pastors are called by the session, uh, and they function within the congregation. Um, and so actually, there's a, there was a debate in the beginning of the PCA. Does this principle in, you know, a 3-1 and in um, preliminary principle number six, does that work with an assistant pastor position and uh, trying to refine that? In fact, if you have an assistant pastor that's called, you'll note that the vows are a little bit different. The congregation doesn't vow to submit to them to try to maintain that. Uh, but uh, we might get into it a little bit more um, uh, in the near future about that debate and and uh, trying to square that principle with having assistant pastors in the future.
0: In his book uh, on church polity, Guy Waters has a great quote from Thomas Peck on this matter of, of power being um, vested in the whole body and the rulers and those ruled. And, and speaking about the power residing in the body as to being and in the officers as to exercise, Thomas Peck writes this, the body sees, but sees by the eye. The life of the body is in every part and organ and the life of the body controls the life in every part. The eye sees by the life of the body and sees under the control of the life of the body. And for the good of the body, the eye is in not over the body for that purpose. And so that's the way that we can think about the, the power that Christ has given to the church is vested in the body of Christ, but is exercised by the officers that are elected. And, um, it's, it's significant to note that that language of the first paragraph, that the power is exercised by the people extends to the choice of those officers whom he, that is Christ, has appointed in his church. So there's two things going on there, right? There's a choice, which Jared's already referred to. But there's also this aspect that, that Christ has appointed those who will be chosen. If you get into Book of Church Order, chapter 16, that that starts to define what calling to, to vocational ministry is, what the, what the call upon an officer is. It describes it in three ways. There's an inward testimony by the Holy Spirit. There's a manifest approbation of God's people, and there's a concurring judgment of a lawful court. Well, that inward testimony um, is, is often just, you know, you feel called to ministry, and so a man would be willing to undergo the trials. The concurring judgment of a lawful court would simply be the examination and approval by a session or a... Um, a Presbytery, that manifest approbation of God's people is very significant. That's what three one is talking about, is that they are a part in their voting of calling a man to the office, um, and they call those that Christ has appointed. Um, Guy Waters again, sorry, uh, election completes the call of Christ to a particular man in the office. And he draws an interesting distinction here. He says this means that the officers of the church, while elected by the people, are not ultimately accountable to the people. They are accountable to Christ, and maybe that's a conversation worth having. Um, what do we What do we mean when we hear people say things like um, that? Uh, we govern by consent of the people, or that we have some kind of um, bottom up uh, style of government? Scott, I'm interested what you think on this matter.
1: Well. Um it's kind of gets back into like the constituency idea where I'm accountable to the people that have given me their votes. Um, We wanna push back against the minister or even the ruling elder to thinking that they are representing a certain portion of the congregation, that they're only on the session in order to represent that type of person who they are, who, who has elected them um it can kind of get messy when we when we think of that way because then we are seeking to please man and please those who have elected us rather than the Christ that has ordained us to this office and so we we have to be careful um as we are serving our congregations that we are not merely people pleasers seeking to do whatever they want because it's not we're not called to do whatever they want we're called to lead them according to Christ's appointment uh and so that is that is probably a, a popular misconception and error that we see in our churches. I think the idea, with even within the PCA, of being grassroots can lend itself to that sort of error, that it's always bottom-up, that the, the lowest common denominator is the one that influences those who are over us. But actually, we're just accountable to Christ, and we seek to faithfully minister uh, in His name.
2: Yeah, I think... In churches that have terms for people serving on a session, they especially have to teach the congregation that you're not electing them to say, did they represent you well, but did they shepherd the way that Christ has called them to well? Um, and you can notice throughout the, the BCO, uh, was it was written in a time where there really wasn't term eldership. And so um, kind of uh, keeping that in mind and in line uh, when we're educating our congregation would be important.
0: Dear listener, you may be wondering about that that word that's still lingering out there in the middle of this paragraph, um, where it calls the church a spiritual commonwealth. Uh, either one of you guys want to address that for us and, and explain what we mean there.
1: Jared, can you define commonwealth? <laughs> I live in a
2: commonwealth in Pennsylvania.
0: <laughs> this is another example of I'm going to have to edit down because I just asked you all to respond, and then I'm going to be the one responding. <laughs> Well, referring again to what we hope is soon to be forthcoming commentary on the BCO by Per Almquist, Um, he writes in this particular place about commonwealth, that the church is a kingdom in relationship to Christ. As it relates to each other, it is neither a monarchy nor a democracy, but a commonwealth. Those who are ruled exercise part of the power of the church, and this exercise of the church's power by the people at large is the choice of officers. So it really kind of sums up what we've already been talking about. Um, anything else there on paragraph one, gentlemen?
1: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the early part of the American experiment where, um, the ideal was to elect men for Congress that were most qualified, that had the best reputations within your community that represented your community, whether you agreed a hundred percent with them or not. Um, the, the, the idea is the quality of the man that you are electing to office, and um, which is a little different than perhaps we look at government today where we don't care about the person at all who's running. We just care about their, um, their political partisan um, connections. And so I mean, in the past few election cycles, it doesn't matter who's running for president. It's just we need to vote blue or red because that's who we are aligned with. Whereas I think the greater ideal is, well, you might disagree with this person, uh, but they are the best we have as a group that could lead this country. In the same way, we we should think of, or in a similar way, I should say, we should think of church leadership in that way. Uh, do I agree with this man on every little idea, uh, iota? Well, maybe not, but he's the best uh, that our flock has to offer in regards to shepherding and leading us to Christ. And therefore, while I might have differences on how he raises his children or some other minute detail, this is the best we have. And we want to be shepherded by
2: him.
0: Let's move on to paragraph two. Ecclesiastical power, which is holy, spiritual, is twofold. The officers exercise it sometimes severally, as in preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, reproving the erring, visiting the sick, and comforting the afflicted, which is the power of order. And they exercise it sometimes jointly in church courts after the form of judgment, which is the power of jurisdiction. I've shared with you guys on occasion that this is one of the places that I see ordinands getting stuck um, so much of the time. It, it can be a confusing thing to understand, at least initially. And perhaps that just points to their their um, poor studying when it comes to the book. Ecclesiastical power is twofold, and and it is holy spiritual. And we're going to talk about that more in detail when we get into paragraph four. But but to start with, let's talk about these two sides. The first side they identify as as the officers exercise church power severally. Severally just simply means one at a time or each on his own or apart from the others. Um, and it's it's identified as the power of order. You know, this doesn't mean, it's not the word orderly, like what we like to use with Presbyterian government. Um it, it refers to the orders of the church. You can go back to BCO 11 and see it identify the orders of the church, which we'll get into uh, in several more chapters. It's used as a noun here in this way to refer to the officers of the church who have been ordained to rule. And so church power in this sense is exercised severally under uh, after the power of order in these particular ways. And I was going to ask Scott or Jared if you guys wanted to elaborate a little bit on these different ways that... Um, that that the church exercises its power, severally, specifically.
1: You think of the, the preaching of God's Word. Uh, obviously, the session would determine who's preaching that Sunday, but the actual act of preaching is done by one. Um, you sometimes hear in some traditions where homilies, or at least in like megachurch multi-campuses, where homilies are almost handed out to the campuses. Uh, but it's actually an individual act. Uh, the sacraments are another individual act. Uh, yes, the session itself is involved in distributing, but the administrator, the person that's administering the sacraments, does so individually. We don't all stand up there with pieces of bread, holding on to it all at once and cracking it together. It's the minister that leads individually. Um, reproving, visiting, comforting, uh, pastoral care, and counseling, those are all acts that are done individually and it's good to rem- remind ourselves that there are certain works within the church that you as the minister or as the ruling elder have liberty to work within. That's not usurping the body or the the session and it's it's those kind of acts comforting those reproving those visiting uh, preaching teaching etc.
2: There you have many of the individual actions but then there's also the things that are done jointly. And it's important to have that distinction because there's certain things that individual elders or individual pastors can't do on their own. And and these tend to be uh, discipline in terms of um, judgments and uh, in terms of um, doing a censure or something like that, that one individual elder can't say, hey, you're excommunicated or uh, I, I'm formally admonishing you in front of the entire congregation without there being some sort of a coming together of the session to do that together. That's something that they have to do jointly. They can't just do individually.
0: This point on, on the, the difference uh, between the two types of church power, it's always worth saying I try to repeat it as much as I can to my, my people. Church discipline is not bad, right that there may be a more a side of it that we think of as more negative, which would be what we've talked about here is the power of jurisdiction that is that that when the court judges and rules on a particular case. but if you think about how 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 much of these things do you all do on a regular basis i mean we're we're all preaching once a week, we're all reproving, right We're all counseling, we're visiting people the 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 several aspect of church power, that power of order is the primary thing that we see happening in our churches um it it is the positive side we may say of church discipline and church power that we are seeking after our people um i've had men come before our credentials committee and i say um you know talk to me about the the individual power of of an officer versus the joint power of an officer And and we're trying to refer to this particular paragraph and they say oh well the officer doesn't have any individual power and primarily, they answer that way because they only think about discipline in a negative sense. They think discipline is purely indicting someone and in bringing a judgment after a trial. They don't think about discipline in the broader sense that it is a shepherding, a discipling work of individual officers as they minister in the church. It's a very helpful distinction that that the book makes here for us. Anything else there? Yeah,
1: it, Yeah, this reminds me also of the plurality of elder rule, that this is not merely— Pastor with some um, underlings, but they are co-equals, um, and so I, I find it helpful as a minister, as we are discussing policy as a session, um, for example, to try to constantly, through my own practice, um, to allow the the elders themselves to guide and lead policy. Uh, it's it's my opinion that the the pastor as moderator takes takes a step back with most policy and lets the the ruling elders think through and create policy um for the church rather than the the let's just do whatever the pastor wants i don't want you to do whatever the pastor wants um, because i may not be here forever i won't be here forever and so if you can think clearly on your principles as a session you will lead the church together rather than wholly depending upon um a minister we had a discussion a few months ago on communion in nursery as an example, and I just sat there quietly. I let them all chew on the idea um, for a few minutes, and uh, then one inevitably asked, well, Scott, what do you think? Well, I have strong opinions on on nursery, but I didn't want to poison the well before they already started thinking about it, and so they were able to articulate their own ideas. We we drew them together, and we were able to act collectively, and, and I think it's a healthy a reminder that that session should be talking together through issues rather than pastors or clergy dictating the direction of the church. Um, It's much better for the session itself to truly believe the decisions it's making rather than saying, that's just Scott's policy. So let's just follow it.
0: Now, Scott, rather than assume that this is a typo, I'm going to call you out. Um, But I want you to remember that this is a safe place and you don't need to be afraid. But you wrote in our our joint uh, notes, I have authority individually to carry out a judgment. I'm just wondering if there's something you want to confess or if there's anything that you've done that you need to repent of.
1: Uh, That was sarcasm. Now there's the word no is supposed to be in there. It's already fixed. I'm not the bishop of Providence Presbyterian Church. I have no authority to carry out policy or judgments on my own.
0: We're all glad for that, not just in Scott's case, but in all of our own cases as well let's move on paragraph number three the sole functions of the church as a kingdom and government distinct from the civil commonwealth are to proclaim to administer and to enforce the law of christ revealed in the scriptures this is talking about the functions of the church and i really am just going to kick it to you guys talk to us about this paragraph
1: i just spoke i don't know if i should speak again
0: (laughs) jared you have a good note I, I don't have a lot to say. On There's
1: this. nothing you could disregard this section in the BCO. It's, <laughs> it's actually not helpful.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: uh, Guy Waters says uh, the church may require nothing that Christ in the Scriptures does not require, and the church may endorse nothing that Christ does not in the Scriptures um, teach. and And so when you're when you're thinking about the limit of church power. Our our limit is grounded to the Word of God in Christ, and so that is proclaiming Christ's law, administering Christ's law, and enforcing Christ's law. Uh, Again, we are not a legislature. We do not create new laws, though we've heard this, you'll probably hear this a few more times, especially in these early parts. We are merely um, applying Christ's law. And so we don't create new, Um, we just interpret from old, Um, much like a judicial uh, court would, um, rather than a Congress who creates new laws.
0: Later on in that same chapter, Waters makes the point that, that the reason um, that we are to take up only the work that uh, the Word of God gives us to do is because we are an essentially spiritual society, which leads well into paragraph number four. The power of the church is exclusively spiritual. That of the state includes the exercise of force. The constitution of the church derives from divine revelation. The constitution of the state must be determined by human reason and the course of providential events. The church has no right to construct or modify a government for the state, and the state has no right to frame a creed or polity for the church. They are as planets moving in concentric orbits. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. There's much more here than just the spirituality of the church. But it certainly starts there, and the things kind of tease out from there. Jared, you know, we joked earlier about how you didn't have much to say up until this point, but i've I've been proud of you for jumping in at at different points and helping us out. Why don't you help us here as we think about paragraph number four?
2: Well, this paragraph comes from the old Southern Presbyterian Church, and you get some of the language there of uh, the spirituality of the church. But um, there's this, there's this idea as if the spirituality of the church, whenever we talk about it, is exclusively this Southern uh, thing, this idea that the church has certain things that it does and doesn't do, that we can't do things like find people or arrest them, you know, that the church has uh, not the power of the sword, but the sword of the spirit. And it goes back to another preliminary principle. But uh, what it means is that not only should the church or the state not take the keys of the kingdom, but that the church shouldn't be getting involved in ways that are usurping power uh, from the civil government and doing legislation and things like that. Um, But when you get to certain moral issues, you start to ask the question, uh, does the church just hold its tongue on certain things here? And um, so there's a big debate uh, within Presbyterianism, especially American Presbyterianism, of what should be covered on that. Uh, Thornwell, thought that, um, he said this of the church, that it has no commission to construct society afresh, to change the forms of its political constitutions, uh, the problems which uh, the anomalies of our fallen state are continually forcing on philanthropy, the church has no right to solve. Uh, she must leave them to the providence of God and to human wisdom. Uh, eventually he goes on to say, uh, beyond the Bible she can never go and apart from the Bible she can never speak. And Thornwell would, and some of his Uh, contemporaries in the Southern church would use that to say there shouldn't be a position of the church on slavery. Uh, But Charles Hodge, I think is interesting to note, uh, also believed in the spirituality of the church, but he put it a bit differently. Uh, Hodge said this, he says, yes, the Bible uh, gives us no rule for deciding the litigated questions about public improvements, a national bank, uh, or a protective tariff, or states' rights. So, Hodge would basically say, I agree on the spirituality of the church, but he went on to say, but it does give us rules pronouncing about slave laws, slave trade, obedience to magistrates, treason, rebellion, and revolution. And he's poking a little bit at Southerners and saying, you're also not supposed to rebel against the government. Um, but that is to say that it's, if you believe in the spirituality of the church, it's not a north-south thing. The, the northern church affirmed it too. It's just, how is it applied? Uh, in fact, there's a article recently that appeared in the Westminster Theological Journal, uh, Dr. Uh, Sean Michael Lucas, arguing that uh, Francis Grimke, uh, an African-American Presbyterian minister, would affirm the spirituality of the church, but would still speak out on certain issues uh, regarding race at that time. Um, And even if you read Bannerman, he has this idea of the spiritual independence of the church. And so even as an establishmentarian, he wants to say there are certain things the church does, there are certain things that the state does, and they shouldn't intermingle. And in fact, uh, you can go all the way back to in the late 1500s, the second uh, book of discipline starts with this principle. So it's not a Southern principle. It's a, it's a Presbyterian principle. It's just what is the application of that? And uh, the PCI has struggled a bit with that. Uh, basically, anytime that we want to do some sort of a petition, um, the language of the confession is that by humble petition, the church can address the state. And So the question is, when should it do that? Um, The PCA has three times uh, petitioned the federal government on the issue of abortion, uh, 1978, 1986, and 2022. Uh, The last time it happened, um, it was noted that R.C. Sproul actually had said something about this, and he almost seemed to have Hodges' idea, I think, of the spirituality of the church Uh, He wrote this about that issue, uh, not in the 2022, he'd already gone to be with the Lord by then, but in an earlier book, he said, uh, when the church calls on the state to prohibit abortion, the state is not being asked to establish religion, nor is the state being asked to be the church. The church is simply asking the state to be the state. The church is not asking the state to baptize human beings, but to protect the lives of unborn humans. Um, So all that to say uh, the spirituality of the church doesn't keep the church from pronouncing on moral engagement or make it antinomian or quietist uh, in regards to civil politics, Uh, but it would stop them from saying, you have to vote for this candidate or, uh, you know, you have to solve this moral issue by supporting this bill, H.R. 123. Uh, But uh, at least the PCA has, has seemed to understand this as you can still call the state to do the things the state is supposed to do
1: and that fits well with the idea of we minister and we declare we declare we declare the truth of scriptures to those who are within our congregations but to the ends of the earth and that can include humble petitions um to the state and so it, they're not they need not be um a false dichotomy here where it's just uh, completely separate we have the power to declare and that declaring includes declaring the truth of god for Um, protecting life, as we heard from Dr. Sproul just a moment ago um, in that quote, um, but in other manners as well. Uh, The the difficulty, though, is it takes incredible amounts of wisdom to discern when when to to formally um, make declarations.
0: Let's move on to paragraph number five. The church, with its ordinances, officers, and courts, is the agency which Christ has ordained for the edification and government of his people for the propagation of the faith and for the evangelization of the world. This begins to talk about how the church does the work that's been given to it.
1: Uh, time out here. Okay. Um, yeah. Is Westminster not really uh, affiliated <laughs> with the OPC? Am I just
2: it's am I just now learning that? It's not they're they're not supported by them or attached to them. They're an independent seminary. So the OPC has
1: no denominational seminary. Uh-uh. oh well that's news to me like you just delete my whole section i have nothing to say on this
0: <laughs> Well, here, we got to figure out how we're going to talk about this then because i was going to kick to scott in fact i thought that's what you were about to do was start talking about it um
1: no i can talk about this um and the yeah so when we were i was doing some study and in the commentary on the bco uh, morton smith believes that this section of the bco um, is actually speaking against parachurch ministry. And, and I think perhaps we are seeing, in some, at least, part, that there's a tension between Northern and Southern Presbyterianism as it relates to uh, parachurch ministry and the support of parachurch ministry. Uh, the Northern Church, um, PC uh, USA, OPC, uh, th- those denominations, Um, they supported independent agencies and parachurch ministries, especially the OPC, if I can retract that. Uh, You can see Hodge on this, but also Machen, um, who would um, be a founder of his own independent missions board. Whereas when the Southerners uh, detached from um, the main line, they argued against it generally. Actually, Hodge and some others go back and forth over the application of the spirituality of the church as it relates to independent agencies within the church and so uh, a good read on on Southern the southern approach would be guys like Thomas Peck and, and Dabney as they talk about everything being connected um, to the church proper under ju- correct jurisdiction um, and it's it's somewhat ironic uh, though I'm just learning now that Westminster Theological Seminary has no formal ties to the OP. Um, RTS though it comes from a southern, tradition and heritage, actually also remains independent. And and we see that arise out of the issues of rampant liberalism. It's almost analogous to what Machen went through in his time um, in the Southern uh, seminaries. And so the institutions failed. And when institutions fail, you start something independent. Um, and so I'm guessing when the, the Southern church um, was thinking through this theology, they did not have failing institutions. <laughs> Um, but something unique, um, in in our tradition,
0: incredibly ironic. And a shout out to Jennings Duncan here for doing the study in the PCA yearbook, realizing that a vast majority of PCA, uh, TEs come from RTS system in some way. So, uh, we don't, we don't have a bell like other podcasts do when we mention certain things, I'm going to have to get one for RTS of some kind, make, make Jared feel real welcome and warm.
2: I think it is a bit ironic, though, if you are if that was Morton Smith's uh, position, just to think about the founding of the PCA, if um, they would have considered, you know, the Presbyterian Evangelical Fellowship, the Concerned Presbyterians, Churchmen United, all those groups, weren't those in some ways parachurch organizations or maybe pre-church organizations? Um, I've always heard um, the analogy of there's parachurch organizations that are out there uh, but you have to remember, they're the bridesmaids, they're not the bride, right? So anything that they're doing should be serving the bride. It should be pointing towards and helping the bride, not taking her place or taking the attention uh, off of her. I think that's a maybe a better way to uh, apply some of those principles there.
0: You know, some people would jump in and and suggest that the PCA does have parachurch ministries. They may get confused as they look at places like RUF and MTW and MNA and think, oh, well, this is a parachurch. This is operating sort of on its own, disconnected. But actually, the the truth is that we are very connected. That's really the whole point of the way RUF and MTW and MNA work is that we um, oversee them. And that, um, you know, if you have an RUF campus minister at a college university town near you, he's an ordained teaching elder in the PCA because he is uh, an arm of the church going out after the students that have have um, have gone off to university and he's engaging with them there. It's not parachurch. It's not apart from the church is a part of the church. Uh, and, and the same thing with our other agencies and permanent committees, uh, in those and I, ways.
1: And I think with Ruf in particular, its founding was grounded within the church. And so I, I believe, and I may be wrong on this, but wherever there was an RU, a new Ruf chapter established at a university, it'd be grounded and connected to a Trinity Hymnal church uh and so like that would be like this almost like the agency sending one of their own guys out that they have called into the university to draw people back into the church itself not to merely stay on the university campus but to draw them in um to uh, a reformed congregation that sings good music and mm. hears the faithful preaching of the word and so these were all ministries that were bound within the context of the local
0: church. Yeah. Um, I can back so that up. I'll I support that. I was a part-time RUF intern my whole time in seminary in Jackson. And we used to talk about RUF being an arm of the church that extends out and sort of um, hooks the students back in and sort of sort of draws them back. And oftentimes you'd get more than just the covenant children being brought back in, in, in the group, right? You'd have yeah. other sheep kind of being converted and brought into the, the church as well. It's a wonderful ministry. Many people have been blessed through it, um, and we're glad for it.
1: Yeah, it beckons them in. You, you think of the old um steeple churches with the bells that would they would ding 10 minutes before church service would start to call people in. And, and that's how we should view the ministries of the church. Um, they are to call people in. That is their function, to call people in so that they might hear the gospel, because that's the work of the church, to hear the gospel and to receive Christ. And so all of our ministries should be connected to that beckoning, that church bell calling um, the people to to worship God.
0: You know, we kind of got off on a discussion about parachurch. I think it's worth jumping back up to the paragraph and seeing it one more time. The church with its ordinances, officers, and courts is the agency which Christ has ordained for the edification and government of his people, for the propagation of the faith, and for the evangelization of the world. That the whole uh, goal of the Great Commission— this paragraph says, is met in the church. All the things that Christ has given, the ordinances, the officers, the courts, the purpose, and we'll read this in other places, is the gathering and perfecting of the saints, right? To bring Christ's people in. And so you see it, I mean, you primarily see it, right? The public sort of facing things are the ordinances. So all the things you see in a normal worship service, the preaching of the word, the praying of the word, the singing of the word, the reading and hearing of the word, the, 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 the seeing of it in the sacrament these, plus the officers and the courts and their several and joint work, are intended uh, to, to propagate the faith, to edify the church, and to evangelize the world. Um, that's what paragraph five is getting at.
1: And it protects the church, right, from focusing on frivolous things that actually don't really matter. Um, I mean, how many times in any session meeting in any church is there a discussion on things or something, some policy it really is not germane or matter to the life of the church, and it sucks up the time of the of the session. Um, but you could probably, perhaps, think of this: you, oh man, all all of the COVID discussions that you had that just sucked the life out of your session. Um, if your session had any sorts of diversity on on the pandemic, it just sucked the life out of everything you did, and the focus became more about ourselves and our 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 safety or their lack of rather than the ministry of the word and what counts as most important.
2: The principle that's in this paragraph, I think is, is so important because it really was at the heart of when I felt the call to be in the ministry, um, that the church is the agency, or, um, I once had a seminary professor say the church is the arena where the game is played, right? That is where, um, Christ is, um, uh, is engaging with the world that's where god is that's god's plan for the world it's the church it's not any um you know parachurch organizations can help the church for a while but they come and they go the church is the one thing that was guaranteed that the gates of hell will not prevail against it and so it's important for us to remember that uh the church is uh, of the highest priority in in what we're thinking about these uh these actions these christian actions in our christian lives should be
0: well, let's keep moving we have one more paragraph bco36 the exercise of ecclesiastical power, whether joint or several, has a divine sanction when in conformity with the statutes enacted by Christ, the lawgiver, and when put forth by courts or by officers appointed thereunto in his word. This speaks to the weight of church action, and really it speaks to the um, the way that churches can take action, sort of the authority that they hold as they do so. Um, it, it it connects back to some of what we read in the preliminary principles about um, our power being ministerial and declarative. What do you all think on this?
2: I think it helps us to understand that though we say the power of the church is spiritual or declarative, that's not a light thing, and it's not empty words. Um, if you're comforting somebody with Scripture on the presence of God there, of the fact that he's bringing all things to good, um, you're not saying things that are just sentimentality. Um, you are declaring what God is doing through his word, right? And, and the same with if you're doing discipline, it's a weighty thing, even though it's declarative, even though there's no power of the sword from the state. Um, when Christ says in scripture, depart from me, I never knew you. And we're saying you are acting as those goats. What we're, When we're declaring that, the hearer should be hearing the words of Christ in their ear. So whether they're words of comfort or whether they're words of judgment, what a weighty thing, uh, though it's declarative and spiritual, that we are declaring there. It's not a light responsibility.
0: I think that pretty well sums up that paragraph for us. Guys, do you have anything that you want to say in conclusion to this chapter as we've we've worked through the nature and extent of church power?
1: Uh, yeah, go by um, How Jesus Runs the Church by Guy Waters. Um, it, it was it's a foundational work. Um, it's basically um his lecture on on it for polity at Reform Seminary. I remember buying the book and as I was reading the book, he was teaching the book. And it, it's so foundationally helpful for logically thinking through church power, joint severally. What does it mean to have the kingdom, the keys to the kingdom, all of that kind of topic? Um, so go buy that.
0: Well, since we've referred to him so many times already, let's refer to him once again. As Guy Prentice Waters would say, this podcast is over. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to come back next time when we discuss the particular church from BCO Chapter 4. If you're interested in learning more about anything that we have spoken about, please check out our show notes in the podcast player uh, that you're using, or you can go to politymatters.org. If you've enjoyed the show, we hope you'd consider following us on Twitter and Facebook at Polity Matters, and be sure to subscribe in your podcast app of choice. If you have questions or comments, you can contact us uh, on Twitter or Facebook or at PolityMattersFeedback at gmail.com. Scott is the senior minister at Providence PCA in Troy, Illinois, and you can find him on Twitter. You can see our show notes for all these links. If you're looking for Jared, he's the pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. He's uh, an editor over at Presbyterian Polity as well, and you can find him writing from time to time uh, around the interwebs. I serve as the associate pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cleveland, Mississippi. I'm on Twitter and Sermon Audio, uh, and you can go find uh, my brother's preaching at their church websites that we have linked as well. We are so glad that you chose to spend some time with us. Until next time, say goodbye, gentlemen.
2: Goodbye, gentlemen. Adios.
0: See y'all later.
1: That was a good episode. That was, I enjoyed that. Yeah.